Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. My next guest is one I'm especially close to and honored to have on the CoachCast. People often think he's my brother, but in fact, Joe Friel is my father. He is just so darn fit and fast on the bike that people can't believe he's in his mid-70s. Joe is my co-founder at Training Peaks and is one of the most recognized coaches having worked with Olympians and athletes of all ages. He is also a well-respected author, having written classics such as The Triathlete's Training Bible, The Cyclist's Training Bible, Your First Triathlon, The Power Meter Handbook, The Paleo Diet for Athletes, and the book we dive into today entitled Fast After 50. He is my lifelong coach and mentor, and I hope you enjoy the show, as this was certainly a very special one for me to record. All right, thanks for joining me today, Dad. (laughs) I usually don't say that too often in interviews, (laughs) especially on the CoachCast. You've been on the CoachCast before, but I've never interviewed you, so uh, definitely a special one for me. So thanks for joining. Yeah, you bet, son. Thanks so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, you've written tons of books. How many books have you written? Um, 17. 17. So every morning, though, you're writing another one. You're always writing in the morning. Well, I'm always working on a project of some sort. Right now, there is a, another <clears throat> kind of book project going on, but it's not exactly a book. It's going to be multimedia. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's like a book. You know, it's kind of like the same sort of thing. you got to do some research and kind of put your ideas together. And, and uh, so it's, kind of, it's coming along really well. All right, cool. Well, we're focused today on the book Fast After 50. Uh, you wrote it, what, eight years ago or so? I wrote it in 2012, 13. All right. Has much research changed? Have you seen any ground-shaking new research that would alter the book at all? No, but there will be something that comes down the road which really kind of changes um, the way some of the things in the book may have been uh, put together. So yeah, I expect it'll happen. So far, nothing really. All right. Um, So I could probably venture to guess, but why did you write the book? Well, it actually goes back to the 1990s. I turned 50 in what, about 1994. And um, at the time, it was crossing my mind that, uh, you know, I'm I'm going over this, this magic number, I wonder what that means in terms of uh, the research. So I started reading the research, and I've, I found there really wasn't very much at all. Uh, I decided to write a book anyway, and I wrote a book called Cycling Past 50, and it basically became um, my opinions on aging because there wasn't much in the way of research to, to base it on. And so by 2012, I am moving on to age 70, and so it crossed my mind again, I wonder if there's more research now on this topic than there was 20 years ago. And so I went back to uh, the research and discovered, yeah, there, it had changed dramatically in 20 years. There was, uh, it was overwhelming the amount of research there was available then. But I realized as I was reading it, this is pretty interesting stuff. So I started posting it on my blog. 
And then I started getting so many people coming to my blog to read about aging that I realized, gosh, there's, these people are, are very serious about this topic, same as I am. So maybe I ought to write a book about this. So I wrote a book called Fast After 50, which came out 2013. And um, it really just is kind of an update on what had happened over 20 years of research since I wrote the first book called Cycling Past 50. So is the rate of decline the same throughout the decades? Does it exponentially increase after a certain age? What does that curve look like that the research has shown or that you've read about? Yeah, that question really hasn't been answered. Um, there certainly is a, as a decline that's starting around age 30, 35. There's a decline which is beginning. And um, uh, it, it really kind of stays linear for the most part, but there may be some things going on we don't really know about. But what confounds the problem when you start talking about it is, are the, is that as we get older, there are uh, more things that happen in your life. Uh, you, you wind up with a, a bad back. Um, or you wind up with a knee that's not helping you out anymore. So it's starting to uh, uh, to show signs of wear and tear uh, from many years of use, and so that begins to affect everything else because you can't train as much as you would before. So consequently, things begin to change more rapidly for you. But it may not be because of the the fact that VO two max, whatever it is we're talking about, is changing more rapidly as you get older. It's just because you've got more things going on in your, in your in your physical being that prevents you from keeping it from going as, as you had when you were younger. So there's so many different aspects of, you know, physiology and endocrinology and muscular system psychology. How do you start to even break this down? If, if every system itself is aging and therefore maybe holding you back a bit, um, where do you start to bucketize these systems and what do you start to hone in on that's holding athletes back the most as they age? Well, that was a question I had, too, when I started writing the book um, a few years ago, the more recent book, by reading the research. And what, what I discovered was that there were about three things, really, that came down to that were critical for what was going on as, for, the, for the aging athlete. The first and most obvious one um, for most athletes as they get older is that they... They, they don't recover as fast. That's probably the first thing that stands out. And that's just because the body is going through a lot of changes and um, has a lot to do with hormones and, and uh, other things I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later on. But some of the things that are most uh, reliably changing, the number one is VO2 max, aerobic capacity. I think most um, as the listeners are probably familiar with VO2 max, so I won't go into detail about that. Just basically, it's how much oxygen you can use to produce movement or exercise. And uh, as you get older, that declines rather rapidly. It's something like on the order for average population of 10 to 15 percent per decade, which is, means every year, one to 1.5 percent of your VO2 max is lost after roughly your early 30s, so 30 to 35. The research, there, there was several research studies I cited in the book, which are interesting studies because they were longitudinal studies. Most, most research studies are not longitudinal. We're talking about what happens with aging. Most research studies are, are cross-sectional. So they take a, a group of athletes who are in their 20s, 
and they have them do a certain amount of exercise of some sort, run on the treadmill at a certain pace, whatever, and see what all these age 20-something athletes are doing. Then they take a group of 50-something athletes and have them do exactly the same thing and see what the decline has been over the course of time. And from, from that, they can deduce what changes in VO2 max occurred. But in that case, we're only comparing one group of athletes who are in their 20s with another group of athletes who are in their 50s. And we really don't know what that means exactly because it's, it's not longitudinal. A longitudinal study takes the same athletes and follows them for, for 30 years to see what happens to their VO2 maxes. So real world, looking at real athletes over real time is a much better type of study, but there, are, as you can imagine, there are very few of those kinds of, athlete, of uh, those kinds of studies because they, um, it takes so much time and so much money and, and there's not much in the way of results for decades. So consequently, they don't happen too often. But there have been some of those studies and they basically showed what we've been talking about here is that VO2 max declines steadily in these athletes over time. Um, and we'll probably get back to the reasons for that a little bit later on. But, but basically, that's, that's the biggest change that takes place. Second biggest change that takes place for athletes with aging is loss of muscle mass. And that's largely because of uh, just uh, decreased training, um, decreased stress on the muscles. Uh, we don't work as hard uh, as we get older the, as we did when we were younger. That may be things like we're doing not doing intervals anymore. We're not doing hill work. We're not doing things that would cause muscle to become more, um, to grow more, to, to, be, to be maintained, if nothing else. Now we're doing less of that kind of stuff, and so muscle begins to be lost as we, as we age. And then the third thing that really comes out of all this research I read and described in the book is the, uh, the increase in body fat percentage-wise. Your body weight may not change, but that probably is because you're losing muscle mass at the same time you're gaining fat. And so you may maintain the same muscle or same body uh, weight over time, but there's some big changes that are taking place. We don't really want to lose muscle and replace it with fat, but that's something that seems to be happening again as we age. So those are three biggies that occur with aging. Now, if you're age 51 like me, What's the most important one to maybe focus on? Does some do one of these three maybe affect you earlier, and maybe you can focus on it more, or or should we concentrate on them equally? Well, it kind of depends on the person. I think if 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 you realize that you're you're not gaining body fat and you're not losing muscle mass, but you're slowing down, then that brings us back to VO two max. That that's that's probably the key to that situation. But it could be some combination of those three things that you're experiencing. And so you'd want to evaluate your situation based on what you see happening uh, uh, in real life as far as your training, performance, and races, and so forth. Okay, so if we dig into each one of these, we start with VO2 max. How do we go about reducing the loss of VO2 max throughout the decades? Well, there was an interesting study, one of these longitudinal studies that was done on that, in which a group of American uh, elite runners were tested for their VO2 maxes. And then for the next, I think it was 20, 25 years, they were, they were retested every few years to see what happened. And what happened was, and, and they also looked at what changed in their lifestyle, especially their, 
their training. Some of the athletes lost a tremendous amount of uh, VO2 max over those decades. And uh, what they found was common for those athletes is they had, they had quit racing. They weren't doing anything at all, really. They, they just kind of quit. They no, even didn't even exercise. A second group uh, that we classify and, and had uh, a, a lower decline, something like about on the order of 0. 0.7 to 1.0 uh, per year, so a slide, sl slightly slower decline than the previous group that I mentioned. This group had quit racing, had quit doing high-intensity training. They were doing uh, lots of long, slow distance. They were just going for jogs, basically, which is typical for people as they get into their 50s and 60s and so forth. That group um, maintained some fitness, but they were still losing at a, at a rather rapid rate. And then there was the group that were still racing. These people were still training to high intensity. They were still doing interval workouts and such and all the things that we th think of when we think of elite athletes. They were still training that way. And they were losing it at, at their VO2 max at the rate of, of about 0.5% per year. So roughly half of what the, uh, the people who were losing, you know, who, were, who quit exercising, how fast they were losing it. So one of the key, one of the obvious things came out of that study, and, and supported by another study, which is done the same way later on, was that high intensity has a lot to do with maintaining your VO2 max, which is no great revelation. We've we've known that for decades that if you uh, train your VO2 max, you you'll be able to maintain it at a higher level than if you don't train it. Obviously, it's, it's that which is not trained is lost. So there's something about doing about being highly uh, focused on training, especially by doing high-intensity interval training that has a lot to do with uh, maintaining these, these parameters of fitness and aging. Yeah, there was one other study you mentioned which had to do with all, all the subjects in the study actually raced, but one group did short course triathlon, one group did Ironman, and Throughout the decades, the short course athletes lost less over time. Right. Yeah. And we can obviously see the difference there. People who are racing short course are doing lots more high intensity. People who are racing long course are doing much less high intensity. So consequently, there was a greater drop in VO2 max among the Ironman distance athletes than there was among the Olympic distance athletes. So that that's something we would expect to happen along the very same line is just, a, and it has to do with training and, and um, what happens to your, your VO2 max as a result of the type of training you're doing. So are, are you giving any guidelines or rules of thumb around, obviously people are jumping to the, to the, the, what's published by Dr. Seiler, the 80, 20, the polarization, you know, of training training being that 20% of sessions being high intensity, 80% being lower aerobic type efforts. Um, are all of a sudden when you turn 50, you start doing, <laughs> um, 70, 30, 60, 40, you know, how does that, how do you reconcile that in terms of percentages? I don't think it has to change at all. What I recommend for athletes, well, it's two things, two possibilities. One is to train in nine-day training weeks as opposed to seven-day, and then every third day do a higher-intensity workout. It doesn't have to be VO2 max workout, but a higher intensity like zone four, zone five. Um, and that can still maintain this 80-20 balance 
realize that I, I think most people don't really fully understand what the 80-20 balance is all about. It's not about how much time you spend training. It's about the number, about your workouts and how they're divided. So if you do a workout which involves a 20-minute warm-up and then you do high-intensity intervals, uh, let's say you do 15 minutes of high-intensity intervals, and then you cool down for another 20 minutes, and so the whole workout may take you 45 minutes to an hour, um, that counts as a high-intensity workout. It's not just 15 minutes of high-intensity. It's one high-intensity workout. So the, the, the concept is that you're doing 80% of your workouts are low intensity and 20% are high intensity. Okay, so high intensity can go beyond just VO2 max intervals. So lactate threshold, um, you know, is an aerobic threshold work? Or let's go through, first of all, you talk a lot about aerobic capacity. That's directly related to VO2 max. Um, then the lactate threshold, you know, differences between those two and are both of those, I assume intensity does then aerobic threshold workouts also count towards intensity? No, aerobic threshold workouts are low intensity. So there's somewhere, if you're using like, for example, my heart rate zone system, this is around the, the border between zone one and zone two. So that's roughly where the aerobic threshold is. It's something like about 30 beats per minute below uh, the athlete's anaerobic threshold or lactate threshold or functional threshold, heart rate, or whatever you want to call it. Um, those are rough, roughly the same things. And you're, But if you talk about heart rate, it's, it's roughly 30 beats below that. That puts us in zones four and five, essentially. So what I'm talking about here is if you're doing high-intensity training, that's zones four and five. You're pushing yourself to the upper limits, whereas zones one and two are low intensity training, and that's around your aerobic threshold, below it or slightly above it, and that should make up the the, the bulk of your training, the eighty percent. Okay, so you mentioned seven versus nine. So a seven day quote week versus a nine day microcycle. Um, so explain that concept and, and the dose versus, um, what, density. Yeah, um, dose means how hard your workout is. If you do a really hard workout, um, that could, you know, lots of, lots of high intensity, you're doing intervals of, of some sort, that would be a high dose workout. Uh, whereas if you do a, a, you know, a zone one uh, workout, that's a low dose workout. So dose just has to do with how, how intense the workout is. Density has to do with how closely spaced those workouts are. When you're younger, you can put high-dose workouts back-to-back. -back. Uh, when I was in college running track, um, the coach only knew one workout, and we did it every day, and that was what I called 400 meters till you puke. <laughs> um, we did intervals that were, in those days, actually it wasn't 400 meters, it was 440 yards. Uh, this is back in the 60s. Long time ago, I know for most of you, but that was uh, that was the uh, the common workout we did, and we did it every day. You did five days a week. You'd go out the track and warm up, and the coach would call you over to the, he's in the bleachers with a can of coke and a uh, and a, uh, in one hand, and a whistle in the other hand, and a stopwatch hanging around his neck, and we'd walk over to him, and he'd say, "Okay, let's go." And we knew exactly what that meant. We're going to run four hundreds till we puke. 
Now, he, there's never any comments about <laughs> how fast you should run or how much in a recovery time you're going to get or how many you're going to do or anything. It was, just, it was just total, you know, whatever he feels like doing that day is what we're going to do. And, uh, so, and I, so I'd do those every day, you know, it'd be five days a week throughout the late winter and spring. Except when you had a meet, that was kind of like a, when you, a relief, <laughs> actually. You got a, a break from the training. The workouts were harder than the races were. So you do those. You might wind up doing 10 or 15 or 20, but you might do 25 or 30. You never knew what was going to happen. And so it just made, uh, made for very, very difficult training. But that was sports science back in the 1960s. And as I got older, I realized I couldn't do that anymore. It kept, as I got older and older and older and kept on training, I realized I wasn't able to do that five days a week, even if I got two days off. So now I'm, I've come to the point, in fact, this has been for the last probably eight to ten years, something like that. What I've been doing is what I call 5-2. So it's two days of high-intensity training every week and seven days of low-intensity training or day, even a day off. Um, and so that I found uh, I, can, I can do that. I can still do those very hard workouts, but I've got to uh, give myself lots of recovery after them. So, and, and it works out to be roughly 80-20. By the time you get done doing that, it's going to be roughly the same thing. So five days easy and two days hard. Give us a quick example of one of those hard aerobic capacity days. Yeah, so that would, let's say I want to give you the, the ultimate high-intensity workout, maybe something like, five times three minutes with 90 second recoveries and each of the 90 or each of the three minute intervals is being done at your um, uh, aerobic capacity um, effort whatever that may be could be heart rate which doesn't really work very well for a three minute interval if you use on the bike and using a power meter though it works great uh, so you'd be that would be roughly 120 percent of your FTP five times three minutes at that intensity with a 90-second recovery after each one, done five times. And that makes for a, a really good workout for stressing the, um, the aerobic capacity um, system. If you do that regularly over the course of time, your aerobic capacity should, at the very least, stay the same and could very easily Im improve, especially early on when you first start doing that workout. Right, and the dose might change. You might start out with maybe one minute on, a couple minutes off, and work your way up to three minutes on, 90 seconds off. Yeah, I'd keep the dose really low. I, I would start out more like 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, and do that maybe, for, for depends on the athlete, but if they've not been doing any high-intensity and training at all, maybe do three to five of those. So three times 30 seconds with 30-second recoveries after each one. Um, that would be one hard workout. That would be uh, one of those two hard days a week, part of that 20%. And then the next couple of days, you would go two to three days, you'd go something very, very easy, down around zones one and two. And over time, what the athlete has to do then is, is gradually increase the duration of the, of the high-intensity portions of the workout. So going from 30 seconds to maybe a minute to maybe a minute and a half and so forth over time and wind up eventually doing something like five times three minutes at very high intensities. Right. So a lot of listeners are older, but they are only focused on long duration races, maybe the hard rock 100, the unbound gravel 200 mile might take them 15 hours. I mean, obviously Ironman can take, you know, upwards of 17 hours, of course. So even if you're focused on an event over 10 hours, should you do these type of efforts? 
Yes, you should. What all it comes down to is, though, is timing. Uh, I don't think athletes think very much in terms of timing. They think if they're supposed to do a certain type of workout, they're supposed to do it all the time. But that's not the case. There are, there are, I'm talking about periodization, basically. How do you plan your, your training, your training season? And so if you're doing Ironman distance races, for example, or very long gravel races, as you mentioned, um, you really don't need in the last eight weeks to be doing much in the way of VO2 max training. So you can kind of cut that out. And, but before that, you know, 12, 20 weeks before you start doing that kind of uh, high end or that, that uh, kind of long distance uh, preparation for the race, that's the time to be doing VO2 max. So it's a matter not of not doing the stuff, but when you do it is what it's really all about. But the opposite, if you are focused on cyclocross and short mountain bike races, with the periodization, you're just going to maybe maintain more of that type of workout closer to the race. Yeah. The idea is in the last something like six to 12 weeks, your training should be basically mim- mimicking the race you're preparing for. And so in that period of time, you should, if you're doing, if you're training for criteriums, for example, one hour races, basically you're, you're going to be doing very high intensity workouts because that's what the race demands. You train for an Ironman distance, the race doesn't demand that, so you're not going to do it. You're going to do things that are more like the race. Right. Okay, let's let's move on to uh, muscle, maintaining or and or hopefully maybe building muscle. Um, what are you advocating here? Is this uh, three days a week, you know, every day? You know, what are you seeing with yourself and what are you recommending athletes do um, around maintaining muscle? Yeah, it's, we're probably losing muscle from what the research is telling us at, at the rate of something like about 3 to 5% per decade after your mid-30s. So you're losing muscle rather rapidly. And by the, by the time uh, you're gone, you may have lost as much as 30% of your muscle mass. That's why when we see older people, um, you know, people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, You'll, you'll notice that one thing is that this obvious is they don't have much muscle mass left. They've kind of shriveled up, even if they were, you know, and probably were very, uh, very muscle, muscular when they were young. That is lost over time unless you do something about it. Uh, it's not going to stay there. If you're, if you're right now 35 years old and you think, well, I'm not going to change. I'm, I'm always going to stay the same. Guess again, that's not going to be the way it is. You're going to lose that muscle over time because it's just the way we are. So what happens with aging? And um, so we need to maintain the muscle. And the key to that is uh, uh, a couple of things. One is high-intensity interval training. That, that stresses the muscles, especially the muscles that are specific to your sport. And also weightlifting. Uh, weightlifting is one thing I would highly recommend um, because you can then you can really focus on doing certain types of movements that uh, will build muscle uh, in areas where you're obviously losing it. For example, let's say your arms, even though you're a runner, your arms may be shriveling up to the point that you can't open a, uh, a bottle anymore, your beer bottle. <laughs> um, and so you have to do something about that. And um, so basically you, you can do a lot of things in the weight rooms you can't do when you're when you're training for your sport so weightlifting is probably one of the things that all aging athletes should include and this is low rep high uh, weight uh, or just a high rep it should be again periodized it should be done based on your how you plan out your season uh, the first thing you have to always do at the start of the season, let's, let's say that's in December, January, something like that, 
you start out with using um, smaller loads, less weight, and higher repetitions. Then over the course of several weeks, gradually change that so that you're, you're uh, moving toward using uh, higher loads and, uh, and, and with fewer repetitions. It, it's the sort of thing that re requires a lot of uh, diligence and persistence on your part to make it uh, effective. Yeah. Yeah, certainly making it a, a, as easily of a routine as possible. I mean, I know with you, it's right there in the garage, right next to your bike. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I go out there twice a week and, uh, and lift weights. It's a, it's a very short commute. It's like a 30-second commute from my back door to, the, to my weight room. With your chamois on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, how about recovery? You mentioned that was maybe one of the first things people see is reduction in re or an increase in recovery time needed, be, you know, between hard workouts. Yeah. Um, how do we go about? Is it just a given? Okay, we need more recovery time, or how can we help the recovery along? Yeah. Um, probably what needs to happen. I say probably because there's still just a little bit of uh, discussion around this topic for aging athletes. For younger athletes, you know pretty much what they, they should be doing. For older athletes, it appears they need more protein in recovery. Um, younger athletes need typically uh, taking a lot of carbohydrate post-activity, post-workout, and that's good for them because they're not trying to maintain muscle mass nearly as much as the older athlete is. It's not an issue for them. But as you get older, this taking in more protein is probably something you need to be doing. The research seems to be pointing that direction also that... Um, aging athletes, including women, by the way, uh, need, you know, postmenopausal women, need to be taking in um, more protein, especially post-workout. So that's something that we should probably focus on as, uh, uh, as protein source rather than carbohydrate. Well, you mentioned a couple times to take protein after weights. It was, has shown to be of benefit to help rebuild muscle and then before bed is that right yeah uh, before bed's a good time late in the afternoon or late in the evening is a good time to take in protein um post-workout especially after um heavy lifting um that's a good time to also take in protein but we need that to help build muscle mass and and um before you go to bed you know one of the reasons we're doing it before going to bed is the fact that you're going to be releasing hormones as you sleep uh, testosterone, human growth hormone, and other other things that your your body produces to build uh, rebuild itself, and having protein available as a as a resource makes that uh, more likely to be to be uh, effective. Do you have any other nutrition advice changes for older athletes? No, I think that that's the main thing. That's what I talk about in the book is making sure we we really kind of watch carbohydrate intake while being more uh, aggressive about taking in protein. Um, sleep. You mentioned that's the number one thing to focus on uh, for recovery. You know, sleep is the time when the, most of the hormones are released, human growth hormone, et cetera. Re, you know, regeneration is happening. Any uh, tips around sleep? Yeah, sleep can be difficult as you get older. Um, we don't tend not to sleep as well both men and women, um, we have problems uh, sleeping. And there's some things you, you can do. You can, you, you can probably search the internet and find all kinds of things that are suggested. But things that uh, may be beneficial, may be helpful, is, uh, is obvious. Things, some things are obvious, like 
caffeine in the afternoon is probably best avoided. But there's some things you can be doing which are going to uh, Im improve your sleep, perhaps. Uh, there's, this is not hard science, but there seems to be some, some support for things like uh, valerian. It's a, a tea you can drink, and it helps to uh, uh, promote sleep. It, somehow it, it causes the body to become more relaxed. Um, there's others have suggested things like and, and found some some use for in older athletes for things like uh, tart cherry cherry juice uh, before going to bed a half hour or so before going to bed drinking a small glass of that may be uh, helpful for sleep um, so there are things you can do but again you can probably just search the internet and you can come up with all kinds of things that you can do but you got to work on getting more sleep that that is really the the key at all levels, no matter what your age is, but especially for older athletes, you've got to get sleep. If you're not getting enough sleep, enough is probably in the order of seven hours per night or more. Um, as we get older, that number is probably closer to seven, whereas teenagers, it's more like nine, 10, 11 hours they need a night. So as we get older, that number gets smaller, but we still need to make sure we get enough sleep in to, to allow the body to recover. Have you seen anything around napping being being beneficial or worthy of introducing? I've seen nothing on that related to uh, aging athletes. There is considerable amount of of uh, I wouldn't call it research, but a considerable amount of uh, examples of of real time real world athletes who use elite athletes using uh, daily naps as a way of helping to get in enough sleep throughout the day. So it may, it may be beneficial. It's certainly not something that's going to hurt you. It could be, could be good for you. But I, I, I know of no aging athletes who take naps. They seem to be something that doesn't happen. I don't know why. It could be lifestyle. It's hard to explain exactly why we do things that we do. <laughs> Amongst all of these changes and things to focus on, have you seen any, that, or that, any major differences between men and women? Uh, it's a good question. Um, there's a lot of stuff that happens relative to menopause for women. We, we pretty much know what works for men. Well, the research studies over the, over the past several decades have focused very heavily on males. Females hardly ever are used as, as research studies or kind of treated as being small men. And, um, but there's a, a growing body of research that indicates that that women don't really respond the same way to all these things we've been talking about um, relative to their to their periods, and so uh, it, it's a really it's a very very complex topic. What I'd recommend the listener do if you want to learn more about this subject is pick up pick up a book by Stacy Sims, S I M S, called Roar R O A R. I'd highly recommend reading her book because she goes into all these details about female athletes and uh, what they should be doing relative to their periods and relative to, to aging. She's got a, uh, it's, it's a tremendous book that'll kind of leave your, your mind spinning after a while because there's so much information in it, but you can learn an awful lot by, by reading that book. Yeah. What are the biggest changes you made to your own training throughout the decades? Uh, the biggest change I've made is I've, I've gone to more uh, rest, more easy workouts, rest and recovery weeks more regularly. I, I never pass up a rest and recovery week. That's critical to, uh, to being ready to go again in a few days. Um, making sure that um, 
when I, I do a hard workout that is truly hard, and then making sure after that I get at least two days, sometimes three days, of very easy training. And the very easy days have gotten easier over time. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll ride with my wife, for example, and I've got to tell her to slow down because I'm trying to keep this extremely easy and she's making me work too hard. <laughs> uh, so you, you just got to learn to make your, your easy workouts easy and your hard workouts hard. What I tell athletes is that um, their easy workouts should be seen as being boring, that you don't really accomplish anything out of here other than just kind of go out and you know take it easy on your workout. There is no stress. And your hard workouts, those two days a week, should be uh, dreaded. You should be, you should be thinking about those workouts now. Hard they're going to be in advance. You know, a couple of days before your high intensity interval training workout, you should be thinking about, gosh, I, I got a really hard workout coming up here in a couple of days. Uh, that means I got to make sure I'm rested and ready for it. If, if the workouts aren't dreaded, and if the other workouts aren't boring, then your workout is your training isn't right. It's got to be, you got to see those combinations going on all the time. Boring versus dreaded. <laughs> what about introducing other um, form or modes of recovery? You know, the massages, the, you know, the, the body work, um, any other kind of suggestions or things that you've advised older athletes start to utilize more? Um, well, th this is a tricky t question in a way. I know it sounds <laughs> pretty familiar, pretty common. To be asked, uh, how do you how do you recover? But realize what we're talking about here is it's really it's a two-headed monster. On the one side, we've got recovery, which means being ready to go do a hard workout again, and on the other side, we've got something called adaptation, which is that your body is actually benefiting from the previous workouts you did. And if you try to recover too quickly, um, you may shortchange your adaptation, so it becomes actually kind of contradictory. If you can get yourself to feeling like you're ready to go again, but your body has not fully adapted to the last workout, it's really not a good idea to do it again. So I wouldn't try to rush the, uh, the recovery. I think there are common things you can be doing. The most common thing you'd be doing is taking two or three days after a hard workout really easy. That's the most common thing you can do. And that will allow for adaptation and then get sleep, get enough sleep at night, and that will be when the adaptation takes place. Uh, the hard workout didn't create the hard, the the, the adaptation did not create more fitness. Hard workouts don't do that. Those things happen in the sleep the night after the hard workout. That's when the fitness takes place. So if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're not taking the next couple of days really easy uh, before you do another hard workout, that's when you kind of screw up the whole system. So don't get too excited about trying to shorten the recovery process so you can do another hard workout within 24 hours or 48 or whatever it may be. We want to make sure you adapt to the workouts, and there's no research yet that shows that recovery improves adaptation. So let's let's make sure the adaptation takes place. It's okay if you want to use recovery boots and and elevate your legs and get massage and all that kind of stuff. That's fine and dandy, but it doesn't mean you've adapted. You you may feel better because of it, but don't try to rush the next workout. Yeah, another tip you had in the book was about the dose itself within the workout. You know, end a workout knowing you could have done one more. Um, maybe that'll save you from being extra sore or, or prevent that injury from occurring. <laughs> yeah, typically athletes are impatient uh, and they think they can accomplish more than they're capable of, of accomplishing. And so this idea of when you feel like you can do one more interval, it's time to stop. 
uh, is probably a good idea for, at, at all levels. It doesn't matter just for aging athletes, but the most likely time you already get injured is when you're feeling your best and you think you can do one more. That's more than likely when you're going to get an injury and when you're going to do something that just kind of drags you down to be too too tired to be able to uh, to recover in a short amount of time. Yeah. Well, let's start to wrap things up. What do you foresee uh, octogenarians being able to do um, in the coming, I guess, uh, centuries, you know, decades? Or, or I think they're the most active, you know, when you think about those folks that are in their 60s now, and it's one of the most active generations, you know, we've seen in 50s, 60s, and now they're going to become 70, 80-year-olds. And will we we be seeing more records fall? Yeah, the reason there's so much research available now on aging athletes, as I mentioned earlier, as compared to 20 years ago, is because the baby boomers, the baby boomers are now in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they're breaking all these records. We we used to to look at the uh, the age performance curve is showing a gigantic drop in performance after age uh, 60. Now that drop in performance happens in, in our 70s, and what will happen because the baby boomers who have been at this for a number of decades now is we'll not see that curve drop the other way until the 80s because they'll improve all the, <clears throat> all the um, performances, records, and so forth going forward now. So it's because of these people. They're, they're changing the way we see aging and uh, and that's good. They're they're really making a big impact on uh, on sport age for aging athletes. Yeah, awesome. Looking forward to it. You mentioned your blog at the beginning of the conversation. You want to mention how they can find the blog or how they can contact you? Yeah, I can be reached through my uh, through my blog, and it's it's simple. It's just my name, Joe Friels, F R I E L S, JoeFriels.blog.com. And that's probably a precursor to all your future books. It seems that they start <laughs> in your blog. So thanks so much, Dad, for joining me today. That was a pleasure. And um, I'm just you know learning all this myself. I'm 51 and starting to incorporate all this into my program. And I uh, look forward to decades of uh, fast races to come. So thanks so much for all the great wisdom. Well, I'm looking forward to that also, son. So <laughs> keep, keep it going. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. <laughs>